This is a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to foobarradio.com. The floor is yours on FUBAR Radio. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up a party. I'm going to call it the Brexit party. But given that it's the most Googled word in the English language, I wonder whether the Electoral Commission will allow me to use the name. Well, they have. And you are here today at the birth, at the launch of a new force in British politics. Welcome to the Brexit party. The fact that we should create uh, a situation where Britain is with one foot inside and with one side and one foot outside the Union is a tragedy. It's bad for the European Union. Despite the efforts of members on all sides, we have not so far been able to vote for a deal. So ahead of the Council, I wrote to President Tusk to seek a short extension to the Article 50 period to the 30th of June. Mr Speaker, yesterday EU leaders agreed to grant the United Kingdom an Article 50 extension to the 31st of October. It is this whistleblowing activity into illegal wars, mass murder, murder of civilians and corruption on a grand scale that has put Julian Assange in the crosshairs of the US administration. It is for this reason that they have once more issued an extradition warrant against Mr Assange. Mr Speaker, this goes to show that in the United Kingdom, no one is above the law. Hi, I'm Nimko Ali. Um, welcome. And as you can hear from that introduction, I think we're in a bit of a fucked up world, but hopefully the next four to five minutes, we're going to be talking about um, some amazing things and to amazing people. Um, obviously, as I said, I'm Nimko. I'm not Femi. He's um, busy and um, running around the country. Um, I'm an anti-FGM activist. I'm the chief final defender, as I like to call myself, and also a prolific um, troublemaker. So we're just going to go to our first guest, who's Sarah. Hello. Uh, hi. Thank you, for, <laughs> thank you for coming. And we're just going to go straight into it, because I think you're, you kind of personify a lot of things I wanted to talk about this week which was about what is it to be black and British in this generation right now things about like you know um, how austerity and all these things are really like you know um, 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 affecting us tell us a little bit about yourself and then I'll run into the questions around your incredible organisation that um, helps rough sleepers oh fantastic what a nice introduction as well and I love the fact that you're a troublemaker that's the best (laughs) (laughs) no no it is that's what you have to do in this kind of crisis is what we're facing at the moment as you've heard our political leaders like nobody has an idea what they're doing absolutely absolutely and it's trying to work out innovative ways of, of creating solutions and trying to make people's lives a little bit better and that's where my project Showerbox comes in so I started it about six months ago now and it's been a really kind of busy six months uh, it was all from an article I wrote for Huffington Post and then I did a petition and then got lots of wicked feedback from that and I just thought actually I'm just going to see what I can do myself because I had had lots of conversations with political individuals um, and those conversations were fruitless and I just thought I was frustrated but I thought there's no use in just being frustrated and sitting on my ass. I actually need to think right what can I do to make this a little bit better um, you can get that fire in your belly and mm. that angst you know I Stormzy's experience at snow bombing yesterday for example I don't know if you saw that but, no. um, but just the way that he was treated uh, allegedly the way he was treated snow bombing by some um, security really manhandled really disrespected um, because of his colour um, you know you, you, you get this horrible feeling in your belly and then you think no I can't just sit with that I've got to do something it is about trusting your gut because I think for me it was the same thing around starting the FGM campaign and it was that whole point of that I saw my silence as massively complicit to the misunderstanding of things and sometimes as people 
of color and people have always like you know risen above um, adversity we kind of think that we can do something so what was so what was that aha moment for you so i've been a volunteer for homeless organizations for probably about 10 years and again it was sort of experiencing sort of well being a, a volunteer for various homeless organisations and seeing them experience homelessness in different parts of the world and hearing all their experiences with basically having access to hygiene facilities, basic hygiene facilities, a toilet, you know, a sink, a shower without actually having to do a code on a door at Costa. I mean, how inhumane that that's yeah. what, those are the hoops people have to jump through just to be able to have a human, um, <laughs> you know... A basic, so, human, a basic human right, because I think we see, it on right. A, yeah, we see it on a development context, the fact that we are trying to get toilets across the world, but at the same time here in the UK, I even think that as well trying to go for a pee in Waterloo and it's 50 pence and 50 pence is actually quite a lot if you're begging on the streets of London absolutely absolutely and actually that was part of my thinking towards it I was thinking if I'm experiencing challenge just to leave my house is to be charged just to leave my house I need to have 50p which I don't always have uh, you know and I think it's it's that that level of the extra level of challenge which I think is just unnecessary it's futile it doesn't need to exist and it didn't even exist here Um, there were public baths there were low cost baths people were able to access those um, in different parts of Europe there are certainly free uh, showers free toilets of course in different parts of America and other initiatives like mine that are popping up because the government just aren't doing anything okay so tell us this. so how did you set this up how is it funded because ultimately a lot of these activism things are, it's because we're on a privileged level that we seem to put ourselves out there so how are you running this it's been six months are you have you got another job what's going on what's so, so my work is presenting so I've been lucky enough to basically be able to freelance uh, which has been great that's I mean that's the media world anyway is just sort of full of roller coasters and that actually wasn't sort of probably the the easiest of times to start this project because I've still been sort of looking for work here and there and then getting a lot of work and then not getting so much just in the life of the presenter basically um so I did this article then did this petition and then thought I'm going to do it myself so I raised money on just giving lots of people were super super generous um raised about over four thousand pounds so far which is just so lovely and I haven't massively pushed that recently because actually um, through the first kind of 2,500 I was able to get a really old trailer and do it up um, just pull in loads of favours from really brilliant individuals um, all over the place uh, my friend Paddy helped me bring it from Essex um, there's just so many brilliant uh, brilliant sort of strangers and also my friends as well that have helped me in this process um, but yeah so mostly I'm just giving basically and um, there's still a little bit of money left but it's a, it's a constant sort of plug 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 okay what do I need to do next it has to be quite a linear box ticking um, along the way essentially and you become an expert on many things that you didn't know you had to become an expert in so you were just talking about DIY and actually having to fix um, the um, van up yourself yeah absolutely so it's a very interesting way of of using a saw a couple of weeks ago so my boyfriend was like just wait for me you know you can use my drill and it was just this this whole sensation that I'm very proactive and and I feel like we have to be like that in the world when we see things that we don't like we've got to just get on it and keep momentum and I think if you wait for volunteers or wait for obviously partners and stuff to do things for you it, it often can't happen or it can't happen as quick as you want it to so I borrowed a drill from my dad I got a saw and was very creatively trying to get rid of some rubber on the side of a door because I had to put some hinges on it and that was really hard because to use a drill I mean again it was maybe some people are laughing because they're like using a drill's not hard yeah. but again if you've not done it actually drilling into metal is not the easiest of things um, and it was kind of quite farcical but yeah I can do it now and that's the thing I think we need to really challenge and push against these things that are difficult and, and really break them down into small manageable tasks and then there's just so much more if, if I think you know what I'm going to do up the whole trailer I might be put off but if I think right today I'm going to put on a door 
it's, it's far easier, yeah. you know. So in terms of like um, a lot of the rough sleepers around in London are mostly white and male. How is that for you in terms of being a black woman, um, kind of like, you know, setting up this organisation and actually um, delivering this service? Do you see... Do you see actually any um, black people on the streets of London? Because I, I, I don't know, I think it might sound a bit naive and a bit, um, I can, a, a small-minded to say that, but I think all the rough sleepers I've seen in London have been black, um, have been white. Have been white. Have been white, and it's very yeah. rare to see women, and especially on their own or at night. So what's your kind of insight into that? There is there is a proportion of, of black males, um, generally. Obviously, there's, there's anomalies in there as well. The vast majority, as you've said, are, are white males. Um, we're seeing a change in the, the demographic of, of the people people sleeping rough with the changing world with various migration wars in different parts of the world and so forth um, women are quite pushed to the front if there is a, a, a female rough sleeper obviously anyone with children um, they've got a lot more access to, to funds and, and maybe well to recourse to, to basically councils helping them essentially yeah. um, they kind of get projected forward um, Myself, my personal experience, um, not so much in terms of my colour, hasn't been an issue thus far in the in the past sort of few years. Not that, well, I've not been aware of that, but definitely as a female, I think that can be quite um, quite difficult in in some scenarios in a very male dominated atmosphere when you're trying to help. Um, yeah, you've just got to be aware, I, I guess, and and make sure to have the boundaries up. Of course, make sure it's professional. Um, try to make sure that you've got a warmth about you that's that's still a strength about you yeah. um, you're able to be warm and strong at the same time you're able to have boundaries and be respected whilst being having a nice conversation with somebody you know and I have felt that I've had to sort of work out what that balance is yeah. um, a lot of the time and, I have, and, and also I was just, just going to ask the fact that people are has this made you political because I think so, sometimes the personal becomes the political so has this um, kind of spurred you into taking any kind of political steps I guess through the conversations that I'm having, I suppose when I started this petition, it actually then became a political sort of project in a sense, because then I started having to talk to people like the senior project officer for rough sleeping um, in, the, in the, the GLA, for example, as well. Uh, lots of emails to councils that I've had some success with. Um, the project I'm working on at the moment, where the showers actually are now, is in a, a centre in North London and Housing Justice and Islington Council are working together on that. So you end up having to have a lot of conversations with, with some brilliant people, of course, um, sometimes there is uh, the conflicts that come with lots of people working together with potentially lots of different political um, perspectives, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, I also work with Streets Kitchen and they've, uh, well, you can Google Streets Kitchen. They do all kinds of things, but um, but they've very much aligned allegedly with the occupation of Sophia House, which I believe was last uh, last year um so there's lots of different people working together but it, it yeah it inevitably becomes political for sure on a personal level um i get frustrated that i feel i feel like there's a lot of unrest at the moment um i think there has been for a long time probably since i was born but there's mm -hmm. particularly at the moment and i think what we've got to be careful about just like what you've said is that an apathy doesn't start growing and, and increasing where people feel helpless like they can't do anything because actually there's so much capacity within all of us to do a little bit more probably than we're doing right now yeah, and I think that's what the whole kind of some looking at some of the statistics here in terms of like between 2017 and 2018, 14% of of, um, of homeless households were black, and 19% were Asian. So in that sense, in a global pers perspective and a UK perspective, if we can say like you know how do we bring the minority conversation to the forefront because it still is a specific minority conversation. And in London, I think so. I think those stats are um, UK wide, but in London, I think the racial 
racial um, kind of complexity is, is a lot more and there are more ethnic minority communities here and there are a lot more people being priced out. So how do you feel like, you know, in those conversations, when I mean taking a political, it's, it's you do represent a different narrative to a lot of the other people that they probably see knocking on their doors in terms of campaigning around this issue. Yeah, absolutely. My goodness, if I could be in any way some kind of comfort to see that level of diversity there, brilliant, absolutely. I think so much of it is taking a bit of time to work out where this person is coming from, literally, obviously, in the world, what, yeah. why, where, what they are fleeing from to understand their background. And, and I think, again, that's taking time. I think there's so much rushing and um, putting lumping people together and 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 being a bit lazy maybe perhaps as well and there's obviously we've got a real culture of immediacy where people are like right we need to solve this problem really fast actually a lot of these problems have been quite a long time in the making um where people haven't done bloody anything you know and then it's suddenly just like right shit we need to sort this all out right now and i just think if we take a bit more time to work out and have conversations with people super super important um yeah if i could if, if it's something where people see my color and they think right okay i may be able to be a bit more understood then and definitely all, all the better for sure no I think it's just it's just bringing that um, different like a bit of um, elements of um, vibe like you know vibrance and and I think a lot of people don't necessarily I think you might have the same thing that I do um, that I do that as a black woman you are less threatening than a black man when you come into the political sphere and so, and, and sometimes the, the barriers let down easier than it would be for a black man that was trying to do a lot of things that we were doing yeah. so do, how yeah, do you definitely. find that and it's yeah how do you find that yeah 100% 100% agree I mean when we have these conflict management sort of training sessions there is they obviously there's the first thing that when anything's kicking off it's like don't everyone stand around and make a big deal out, out of it but actually what it does take is more likely to be one potentially even two women to to stay and to try and diffuse it themselves in fact at crisis at christmas where i've worked and um, they've said they've said don't worry if a woman goes in and stands in between them because actually if a man goes in and stands in between them that's likely to exacerbate the situation um again so much it's so interesting with, with knowledge i actually had this training session the other day and the guy was like be really careful when someone stands up to you and is trying to be aggressive um, the chances are you will also stand up and be like whoa 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 but actually that's actually mirroring aggressive yeah. behavior it's better to get them to sit down and 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 try and diffuse it that way um it's been a lot of learning in the last kind of six months um and yeah it's a lot of brilliant kind of learning and also in terms of so i think the, sh the showers that's a great thing but in terms of support systems in terms of mental health and all those um situations are there anything so do you provide a follow-on service or are you just just providing the immediate service which is for the showers and yeah absolutely hygiene. absolutely so yeah there's a lot in that um the showers i've explored as basically being fundamental to physical health and also mental health as well being able to feel good about oneself being able to boost self-esteem reduce stigma received from members of the public as well just being able to be in control to feel restored a little bit um so the, that's the whole basis of shower box then it's basically collaborating with organizations on the ground and what they are doing is probably more of the longer term plans potentially maybe Maybe things like housing, um, potentially education. So I think the key, well, the, the, the key definitely is collaboration between grassroots organisations and councils um, of all, sort of, anyone of all sort of level. Basically, yeah. we come together and pull resources, pull effort, pull time. There's so much chance we're going to make a lasting difference. Yeah. Um, so mine is really creating a stronger foundation from which to uh, make a longer term plan, should they wish, but very much tying in with organisations on the ground. And that kind of links into one of the questions that I wanted to ask in terms of. So I'm the first um, kind of Black African in my generation to be here so I'm 
I'm not sure about your heritage, but, but in terms of, I think in the 21st century, especially in London, young black women have more opportunities than ever, and actually are breaking through um, from stereotypical roles. So whether I don't know what they, those were 10, 15 years ago. So so you in the media, me in law and politics. How is that for you? What's your what, what's been your experience, and what's your heritage actually in terms of that context as well? I actually, it's funny you say that because I had a really it's kind of it's kind of funny, kind of terrible memory of something that happened when I went. I went for a freshly squeezed. Do you remember freshly squeezed on T4? Yeah. Do you remember that? So I went for this um, TV, like, you know, basically on T4 to be like, you know, the new music presenter and stuff. And the feedback I got was that I wasn't urban enough. And and not only did T4 freshly squeeze say I wasn't urban enough, my agent then repeated, oh, so they said you weren't urban enough? And I just thought, oh, my God, even now when I say it, I get goosebumps. Because I just think, how is that possible that you could have someone relaying that information, that horribly lazy bracketing of an individual into what what is urban and what isn't urban? Um, it's just it's so condescending and and really pathetic as well but it was it was kind of just no, but, unbelievable to hear that no but it's um, really it's really really powerful because i think it's that media kind of narrative and and how the society kind of constructs so as a, like you know as 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 black women we're meant to be available but also strong and never be able to be vulnerable in, ter- in terms of breaking down and then we're also meant to be loud and all these things but yeah, when you're an intellectual yeah. i think for me it's because coming from an african background as i think like you know intellect and academia was very important to me i had mm-hmm. i had aspirations so i remember when people used to say oh how did you get that job? And I, I and I would always joke and say, "Well, I filled it out. I, I filled out an application when I had the qualification." Yeah. So it's there is that kind of. So how do you navigate that to be yourself, but yet at the same time you want this job and you want to fit in? So what was? Yeah, how absolutely. Did, I know did, you feel like. How did you come back here from that? Well, exactly. Well, it was really hurt at the time. I was really hurt, and obviously you're you're almost at the mercy of of people making these really snap decisions on basically you, you've worked hard you've grafted so my dad's from Ghana mum's from, um, from England yeah. um, I was born in Kingston in Surrey um, went to uni did all of that stuff and maybe wouldn't go back now I don't know you know yeah. the way how expensive it is and all of that um, but that's what I did um, then worked as a runner and, and so did quite a lot of experience in the media industry and then started volunteering for homelessness at the same time and those kind of careers almost ran parallel um, I felt really shit afterwards and I think I think it's that it's that feeling that somebody could look at you and automatically make a decision that's not based on anything to do with yeah. your merit how hard you've worked um, they make a snap decision and not even find out a little bit more about you um, and also what, what what is urban what is urban anyway you know like, I think that's fear that's what fear does and it's really yeah. interesting that you because um, since the 2010 census the largest population of black people in the UK for the first time is African direct heritage so you're from a Ghanaian background and English or basically having Africa as one of the key routes to your parents. And I think there's a different... kind of cultural upbringing to that to the, to the fact that I think academia comes before street cred and all these things and I, and I think that was fed, fed to young black people in the UK mm. as it was it was like a very important American culture of hip hop and all these things that everybody used to act like I remember going to school both primary and secondary school and refusing to identify as African mm. and now everybody wants to identify as African so it's really interesting in how do you try to get people to understand that you can be black and have a complete different upbringing and different aspirations and different um, cultures to other black people who are also British. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, again, it's having the conversation and I think you can't, unfortunately we can only control the way we react to people's crap, basically. You know, I think that there are 
people that will come at you with a very closed mind. And yeah. I suppose whether you have the energy to always try and open that mind, it's not always easy. There are times where you have to have that conversation. You go, actually, you know, you know, I can be, um, I can be black. I can be a woman. I can be creative. I can, you know, do just all the various things. And I think, I think when it comes to identity, it's really important, I suppose, to, to understand that people will maybe make assumptions about you. And, and if you feel you can break those down, brilliant. But I think we don't always want to feel like we're walking around having to do that. And I think that's, that's, it shouldn't be a world where we have to do that. I think if people straight away obviously take the time to work out somebody, it's like I can't look at a white person and just make assumptions about them, just decide that they are so so forth, you know. They're, um, they're going to be like extremely academic or whatever. Absolutely. Like, but we do have these stereotypes, I think, about um, Asian people, about Chinese, about black people as well. How do you break that? And I find, because I didn't grow up in London, I grew up in um, Cardiff and Bristol. So mm. I think the identity of being African was more important than um, identifying as black. And I remember when my niece was first, she, she, she was three, the first time she, she, she was asked the where are you from question mm. and um, she said oh I was born in um, Hampstead but I'm from North Acton and I thought oh my god that is so brilliant the fact that she doesn't yeah. have to have like I'm from Somalia I'm from um, yeah, East Africa yeah. or wherever it was and I think London has that kind of diversity it does. but we yeah. could I could keep chatting to you and I think I will but um, um, Mandu's coming up Mandu who is the Women's Equality Party interim leader and we've also got um, Justin who is from one of the um, community groups here in London if we come to current kind of hot topic, knife crime, the idea of black-on-black -black violence is rooted in this 19th century pseudoscientific uh, gene-based racism. Black people are genetically violent, so it actually doesn't make a difference whether they're well-educated or not, whether they're a Premier League footballer or a, or a corner street drug dealer, it doesn't make any difference whether they're David Ajay or Oswald Boateng or they're, or they're the guy who's actually out there killing people. It doesn't make any difference whether they're 16 or 46. Doesn't make any difference. I mean, if, if we're going to go with biology, my grandmother should be twice as likely to be violent as me because she's twice as black. The, the black on black violence narrative is literally rooted in that history of empire, in that sort of inherited historical guilt, in that fear, um, and in the sense that black people are just irredeemable. The, the violence in Glasgow or Belfast or Liverpool needs explaining via whether it's sectarian history or political conflict or class. When white people are violent, it needs explaining. Even when a middle class white American kid kills half of his school, it needs explaining. When a, what is really a tiny fraction of black kids in London, as inexcusable as the behavior is, participate in violent crime, even when they have one white parent and one black parent like I do, it's black on black violence and therefore needs no explaining because of course blackness is a perfectly sufficient explanation. So the legacies are very, very much with us to this day. A friend of mine, Dr. Baz Dreisinger, did a PhD when she went all around the world and studied prison systems all around the world. And in not one country could she find a correlation between tougher sentences larger prison populations and reduction of crime. And again, this is common sense. We already have the highest prison population in the whole of Western Europe. Even if we rounded up and uh, took every black person out of prison and deported them all, we'd still have the highest prison population in the whole of Western Europe. Um, so I think the tough on crime thing is about a way of excluding a particular group along with the more police, along with the build more prisons narrative. Hi, um, so that was Akala talking, the, the rapper and activist Akala talking to Owen Jones um, from The Guardian um, about um, knife violence. And I really wanted to ask Justin a question about that, but we're just going to wait for him to come through. Right now I've got Mandu and I've got Sarah still in the studio. And we were just having this um, off mic conversation about being like, you know, first generation African women so you're both judo heritage i'm like in a like in a full somali what is that actually because i think the expectations on us are different to the realities in which we live as like black women in london specifically yeah i mean i think it um is a question if picking up on some of the stuff you said before 
um, black people are not a monolith. You know, black people come from many different contexts, many different origins, many different experiences. And this idea that we should all respond in exactly the same way to um, particular happenings, I think, is absurd and actually yeah. um, reduces us to other people's ideas and expectations, whether that's politics, whether that's education, whether that's media. And so my mother's originally from Malawi, my father's English, and that shaped me in a very different way, probably from either of you two, even mm-hmm. though we are also of African heritage. Yeah. So I think really important not to, not to kind of allow people to simplify the black community into one set of standards and even the continent yeah. of africa i think that's the so you're from like west africa east i'm east and it's like how does that actually like you know sit with the fact that london somewhere we can, we, we, you can all come together and you have to be one homogenous african group you're thinking actually we're, we're not really that like you know that alike but at the same time we get each other and i think for, for me it was our parents got the fact that they wanted more for us and I think the aspiration of the community was there but in 2019 we have the opportunity for a young generation who are coming after us to really be able to be given the examples of individuality which I'm not sure well w- within my community there wasn't the acceptance of individuality you came as a collective as a Somali community I didn't have that the, the, the collective so much in mind I was born in Kingston which at the time was just all white people yeah. all white people my mum was white my dad was black my dad was very very um, strict actually growing up um, well he, I don't know if he's listening now but you were quite strict Hector um, and I think I think he had those aspirations as well you know he really wanted me to play a musical instrument it, all, all the you know all the good stuff but um, but quite but yeah quite strict and and I felt that for sure growing up I felt like, right I need to really do well I need to do well and it's actually almost something that I've got to be a bit careful of nowadays that I don't still keep like right you know you can actually be content in what you achieve as well and I think if you start sort of chasing 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 when you're really younger you can have a sort of anxiety about you Um, I certainly did on on a level Um, go for it yeah I mean I think one of the things that's really important whoever you are whatever your racial background is the freedom to find your own path Mm. what I love is there's three of us here who all have a completely different way of um, fulfilling our potential and being who we are I mean I'm the first black person to lead a political party in the UK today's actually my first day in office thank you thank you very much and I'm both I feel both sort of humbled and proud you know those are contradictory emotions Um, but actually you know it isn't it is all about us sometimes rebelling and being a little bit defiant about what's expected to us, expected from us. And I think that can be yeah. a really important and inspiring way to set an example to everyone. I don't want to just be an example to people who have exactly my same background. Why can't a white girl or a white boy look at me and think there's something there that, you I know, inspire to? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. I think there's a, yeah. a, well, this, this is the thing that I think there's a level of privilege that we all carry with us. And I think that does come from the, um, the African parents that who are quite hard us who the idea of failure was never a thing because I was on this panel the other day and they talked about failure and I said I never had the opportunities or the concept of failure because I had to always succeed and in the last 10-15 years I found that actually being a young black woman of an African descent who had this kind of core of I was instilled in my in my kind of standing in my truth and in my own vision and I think it's very rare to find that for young black women um, who, who who are growing up from different communities and and we're, we're really afraid of saying that so 
Um, and, and I'm going to come back to the fact that congratulations, Manju. <laughs> Thank it's you. amazing. And it's like the Women's Equality Party was, again, about that, about the whole point of the fact that we don't all have to be leaning to the Labour Party. We don't all have to be leaning to the left. And I want to ask, as a young black, like, you know, LGBT woman leading a, a political group, what does that feel like? And how has the last um, few months been in order for you to... Actually, I'm not going to say that you were part of the Labour Party, but were you ever part of the Labour Party? I was. Party? I was a Labour Party member, but... Um, I realised that um, I needed to forge my own path. And um, for years, there wasn't an avenue for me to do that. The Women's Equality Party is only four years old. And when it came along, it, it became a political sanctuary for me. And it's a sanctuary in the same way for tens of thousands of, of, of people up and down the country. Um, I do think that uh, there's a sense of entitlement, you know, in our political establishment yeah. to certain people voting in certain ways. And I think that actually is quite damaging. A political party shouldn't assume that it is entitled to the votes of people from a particular community. I think the Brexit debacle we find ourselves in is, is, a, is, a, is an example of that, where a lot of assumptions were made about what people's views were on, on certain issues. Yeah. And actually... The way to get around that is to listen properly. I mean, Nimco, you and me have a similar experience. We both yeah. stood for office for the Women's Equality Party. We both experienced hostility. I was very surprised at the hostility I experienced from the left yeah, in doing so. Do I know, didn't expect that. I thought those were my people. But no, but this, but you know, this is what's, what uh, it's interesting that 17 uh, members of the Conservative Party MPs are from ethnic minorities, and a lot of the black MPs within the Conservative Party are African, and a lot of the um, so there's this uh, there's this assumption that all black people are the same. And I think it really did hurt from the left when the idea of the fact that why are you standing when we've got a woman standing for the Labour Party? And I was like, but she doesn't represent who I am. And how mm. it's, it was OK for a white woman to stand for the Tory party, but it wasn't OK for me to stand for independence. I had the same thing when I stood last year. It was very funny. Um, well, actually, it wasn't funny. It was, it was but, disappointing. But, mm. what, what, it was what, painful. I'll say it was painful. It, yeah. really, it really broke me to a certain extent. That I, I had people saying exactly the same thing to me. You're a black woman. Why are you standing against another black woman? And I said... Folks, and these were Labour Party folks criticising me. Yeah. I said, have you forgotten your own slogan? You know, for the, the many, not the few. Yeah. The more of us who are yeah, visible, absolutely. the more of us who are representing diverse perspectives and points of view, the better. I don't agree that it's a good scenario when you got one uh, black woman standing up and making her voice heard. Yeah. I don't mind having an argument with you, Nimco, if we disagree. And that's yeah. a healthy thing yeah. for people to yeah. see. Don't and we do put and we black do women in a box. Yeah. Listen to what people have to Just say. Just like we don't put white men in a box. Exactly. Like, what? Yeah. like yeah. white men can have opportunities so there could be several of them all in blue suits standing for different yeah. things. But when it's either one black woman or no, um, nobody standing. But actually, let me come to one of the key um, things that the Women's Equality Party um, yeah. st st stands for. It's like ending violence against women and girls. And for me, as, as someone that's um, an activist against FGM and people always ask about why are there no prosecutions there's only like the percentage of people that have undergone FGM is quite low but the percentage of women who've been raped specifically in London and now we've now got the statistics that the 2016 that has gone up like what are you going to do about that how do you feel about that as a young London woman and also how does race play into that I'm devastated by it I mean we're you know we're going to talk about knife crime and stuff as well yeah. so I'm going to make the link between those two things you know um Black women are much more likely to experience sexual violence and harassment. Um, senior police officers and senior social workers um, have, have 
identified that you know the young men who are um, most likely to find themselves in gangs often come from unstable families where domestic violence is an issue time and time and time again yeah. right so we're in a situation in London where that's what's going on domestic violence is a factor it's a risk factor to this situation and at the same time we're closing refuges yeah. what on earth is going on why are we the only ones who've noticed that and making a fuss about it you have to accept that a lot of the problems that are bubbling up through the surface come from decimating services that women rely on not doing enough to address the root causes of violence against women and girls and I think that is sorely lacking from the narrative yeah. and it has a relationship to all sorts of other issues it does so we have a duty a responsibility to address it and we do and Justin has just arrived so I'm going to say goodbye to Sarah thank and you so no, much for having so me I'm going to be listening outside and we're just going to be playing a trailer, um, a trailer <laughs> into a, um, another show so we'll be back quite soon Bar Radio presents Hi, I am Brian Tyree Henry and I play Alfred Paperboy Miles on the show Atlanta. I made it a point in my mind, like, as I was at Yale studying, you know, like, there weren't a lot of parts for us. You know, I was like, I would reserve myself to be like, I was like, if somebody approaches me and asks me to be a fucking slave, I swear to God, I will commit arson on every fucking thing they own. I don't care. I, you know, like, I, I literally thought about being an arsonist. I was like, let somebody come to me with some shit like yeah, that. Yeah, honestly. Care. You know what I mean? Like Every Wednesday from 4 p.m. Fubar Radio. Hi, welcome back. And we've now been joined by Justin, who's a well-known music producer and the founder or the leader of United Borders. Hi, Justin. Welcome. Music producer, that's stretching it. No, I'm not. I'm actually just a, a youth provision service. Okay. But, um, my business partner does all the music stuff. Okay, that's well. Thanks, sir. Yeah, humility is a good thing. Humility is a good strength. We were talking about the fact that Mandu's just, it's, it's her first day as a political um, party leader. Mm. So um, so we played a, a clip from Akala um, mm. just before you came in talking about knife crime. And I know you have a, a specific personal um, experience to that. So could you tell us what you do and ultimately how this impacts, how, how this impacted you? Right, um, Carla's a good friend of mine, obviously. Um, he's someone from the area as well that we're in. And um, he's someone that um, I've worked with from when he was a young man to who you see today, yeah. basically. Probably one of the um, things that I'm proud to present out there as well. So that's kind of the work that I do with young people. Working with young people, getting them from a point of interest or what they're interested in and actually getting to pursue their endeavours. Um, in terms of knife crime or youth violence, um, it affected me in 2018. Personally, so it's always impacted me anyway because of the work that the nature of the work that I do. But personally, my son was um, stabbed 11 times um, last wow. year, January the 2nd. So we spoke on New Year's Day, um, spoke New Year's the same day he got stabbed, actually. We spoke, and um, he was just walking his cousins back to the train station, and um, yeah, just eight youths, you know, seven young people, uh, you know, balaclavas up, that kind of situation, just set upon them and started to chase them and stab them 11 times. So, but is he alive or what's the... Oh, yeah, yeah, he's alive. Okay. I wouldn't be here today, otherwise I'd be gone, I would have gone doolally, honestly. But, um, yeah, so he's alive. Um, it was a long process, obviously, so there, that happened and it's like, you know, it was touch and go. Then there's that whole three-month rehabilitation period because you had to have a colostomy bag. He got stabbed with a sword. Wow. Sword severed his rectum. So he had to have a colostomy bag for before it was going to be for life. But um, they, the surgeons were really brilliant, so they managed to reattach everything and move everything back into place. So long after that, now you've got the psychological scars yeah. of actually just be, nearly being killed for doing nothing other than walking. So um, we have to process and work with that. And how, how old is he? Sorry. Yeah. Um, he's 22. 
So it's, I think that's horrific. It's like as somebody has also had um, like a really violent act. I think it's the it's it's when you talk about the brutality, it really makes people hard for them to engage. And yeah. it's like, how do we engage with young people who I don't necessarily think are are evil? So in this kind of situation, I've I've, I've got I've got four young black brothers who yeah. could be victims themselves. Yeah. Um, I've got young cousins um, who are first cousins who could also be perpetrators from another side because like they didn't have the upbringings that my brothers did. Yeah. So ultimately, it's like how do you bring that together? Because I think I f- I feel a lot of love and fear for both of them. It's like I want to yeah. I want to hug these um, young people because they just they seem lost when I see them. So what kind mm. of service are you providing to kind of Heal How do we engage? That. Yeah. Right. Um, so we mainly engage with the sorts of people that carried out the kind of acts on my son in it. So it's a, it's a, it was a weird one for me. And actually getting right back into um, work. I couldn't work for a little while anyway. I had to be there for my son. But um, we engage basically by providing not only a course, but providing the right people to deliver the course. And the right people are people who understand violence, people who have been through that cycle of life. People that can even identify post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a lot of our young people are un- undiagnosed with. So, um, you know, we put on a, uh, you know, our, 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 our tools, which is education, music education, but we also expose them to other artistic endeavors, photography, videography, fashion, um, yoga, and self-defense. But it's really about the people who are delivering it. And um, the first thing that a lot of our young people who are expelled from school will tell us is that, you know, our teacher didn't like us. Mm. So the first thing we have to create is an environment of love and like and, you know, leadership, bigging people up, you know, really getting people to um, feel good about themselves. So that's the main thing that we have to change is how people feel about themselves. So um, there's some young people that I've worked with and I've, I've always tried, tried to be clear that a lot of the things that we can um, use as indicators, whether something's working or not, be it knife crime, we've got, a, we've got something to measure how much people were violently maimed we've got you know things to measure you know youth youth going to prison or expulsion rates that kind of thing but we don't measure feelings we don't really talk about it we just leave it out of the the dialogue so um i get young people to actually concentrate on feeling better about themselves ultimately because once you feel good about yourselves you feel good about everyone else and when you're in a cycle of fear so if i speak to my younger white students for example and ask them genuinely who who, who do they fear they don't really have fear for people that look like themselves Mm. so our group has a that thing where they fear they see someone that looks exactly like them and then that testosterone kicks in yeah you know they're heightened they're more aware and they think fight or flight now they're thinking in that kind of mode so until you get that thought that psychosis to change that feeling's never going to change so like gut like the anxiety and um, mandu because mandu was talking about the link between knife crime and yeah. sexual and the rise of sexual violence in um in london which ultimately actually a lot of those perpetrators of domestic and sexual violence actually mostly white men. So it's really right. interesting to understand the concept of violence and how society portrays that through the media lens. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really also interested in the idea of how, um, and you can comment on this, I suppose, yeah. is there, is one of the factors, this sort of pressure to attain status as a man, as a boy yeah. in an environment, in, in, in this environment, is that a factor in kind of what yeah. drives some of yeah. um, the behaviours that we see that are so damaging, you know, to, to our communities? Yeah, definitely. You've got, uh, you've got hyper-masculinity in, in there right. and there. And, you, you know, if you, if you look at that and the relationship between patriarchy and how young men actually feel towards young women, you know, we've, within three generations from my lens, as, as uh, you know, my parents are from the Caribbean and they came over when they was young, and seeing the, the degradation to what we have now in terms of relationships with each other, it's actually quite telling. So my grandparents died hand in hand. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, um, then my parents' generation is the split-up generation. My generation, again, kind of that split generation now, the younger generation is just linking. They don't even want relationships anymore. They just link for 
objectional purposes. Not to say that's everyone, but largely that's how relationships are conducted. Between so, men and women? Yeah. yeah. I was having yeah. this conversation with um, somebody largely. the other day about um, the Somali community specifically that I can, yeah. that I can kind of talk to. I think I said that Somali mothers need to learn to date their sons because what happens is that they came from communities and families where the fathers were always away um, providing for them. So all the security that they had back home mm. was provided by their father. And then they came here in a state of um, refuge from refugees and crisis. And then they... They met men and they kind of came together, but those men didn't necessarily know what it was like to be men. So then they've broken up. So the first man they've ever had to love and learn to talk to were these young men who were standing on the streets. Right. And they don't know how to articulate that. So right. on a day-to-day basis, I, I tell my mom, you grew up in a country where everybody looked like you. Like Everything was yours. You were basically like a white heterosexual man in Somaliland. Yeah. <laughs> you were like, you had everything. To be here, to be born British, but then at the same time not feel British and not feel Somali enough. Yeah the streets are the only place that you have because at least your friends don't knock you down they understand yeah. you and then that's when you become vulnerable to grooming Definitely. so I think it's about the articulation of how we emotionally connect with ourselves and as as black as black people as black community I think our struggle is never felt in the sense that we're 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 we're, we're open representative in the kind of extreme mental um, health issues around the sake of uh, like schizophrenia and everything else because nobody really allows us to break down so I think there's a massive issue about relationships in that You're definitely right I mean I'd, I'd add to that that we also are not prepared to deal with racism whereas our grandparents had to prepare for it because it was visceral it was quite real you walk down the street someone nigger bash you or someone actually physically attack you so with all of that in mind with your young people your children you prepare them with that conversation first and foremost totally. this is how you're going to interact with white people it's going to be negative violent etc et so you kind of know you're up against something so therefore you start to build defense mechanisms to mm. shield your young people now that gets stripped away with our parents generation to where we are now to be kind of british kind of not kind of not sure how we feel about our identity and that's me born in Britain right yeah. but still not 100% sure who I am as a person within British society because you're reminded that you're not really one of us if that makes sense and I think or, somebody said that in a tweet yeah, in the fact that we reminded. are talking about hypermasculinity, but let's talk yeah. about class and racism and especially yeah. within the education system and I'm going to play the devil's advocate in terms of the stuff that you provide on the bus and in this youth yeah. service you said you provide music and yoga and all these things yeah. my mother was like math, science, English. If you don't get those, then you don't get a career, you don't get a foundation. Yeah. Is there any kind of link to that? Because I do think we have to provide features for these young people. It's not just about the now. It's about how do we equip them for the future. Well, I also think that um, from the academic approach, we need to have a, a different approach and a different value placed on certain things. So the arts for me has always been a creative outlet for me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I've always been adequate at math and English, but arts is where I, I excelled. But... Um, Young people in particular, they resonate with art. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? They love music. They love certain things. So it's also getting them to place, or getting society to place proper value on arts, if that's, if that's, if that's the case. And that, there is value placed on European art. You know? Yeah, I was, I was just, I was just yeah. about to say that on the flight from Dubai yesterday, I watched um, Midnight in Paris, yeah. <laughs> which again was all about the gaze of like you know all these white incredible writers from yeah. the 17th century. I'm like, excuse me, but Enlightenment in Africa and other places, it's mm. like centuries old, and we never talk about those things. Yeah. So yeah, there, there, um, there, there, there is a massive ability or massive acceptance given to young white kids to be able to express their emotions. Absolutely. I think what this highlights for me, this whole conversation is. Yeah that the public discourse around how we tackle, you know, gang, serious use, violence, uh, knife crime, all that stuff, is way too simplistic. Mm. The, it, we're always just banging on about police numbers and what the police are doing or not doing. Actually, everything we've just said 
you know, in the past few minutes, is focusing on the nuances of what's really happening. Relationships between men and women, hypermasculinity, race. Why doesn't race get any airtime? Mm. Class, like the uh, reader on Twitter yeah. said, all of those issues need to be considered in the round. Otherwise, we're just going to end up but with... See, but, yeah. but do you see, so the whole point, I, I don't think anyone ever sees class when they look at black people. So no. there's massive conversations about um, the diversity and trying to bring... So there are a lot of black people who are more privileged, like four years, mm-hmm. eat and educate educated than a lot of white working class boys so when it comes to being black you're either black or you're not there's there's no conversation about um about class here in the uk and i find that really problematic because that shows who you need to be focusing on you just you you don't need to focus on every single black child it's about the children that you've ghettoized into areas where like mirroring them in other parts of the country so whether it's in glasgow whether it's in like you know um, yorkshire or wherever it is there are young poor white people who are having the same issues of violence but they're mm. not getting the same airtime because we place working class as, as though it's this kind of thing to be worn as a medal but to be worn mm. uh, to be a black working class i don't think or, or class and race actually don't necessarily um are ever inter- inter- intersected it's a weird one i think um i think for a lot of uh, people outside so black people outside that come in who actually are coming from some privileged backdrops, you know, coming from Africa, Caribbean, etc. Sometimes and then they come to this country and then they're othered straight away and they mm. just feel that black working class experience, regardless of where you've come from. They understand how it feels to be... No, black and black. poor. I don't think it's a black working class thing because working class has this, especially being given by 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 the left, this kind of aspirational, I'm the backbone of this country. You're right. black and poor. So they don't think of you as working class because they don't think of you as working to build this country up, even right. though you probably came on the Windrush generation. So that Windrush generation that actually built this country. So I think working class has also been co-opted to be just white and nothing else, really. Yeah, that's definitely happening. But I mean, if you look at the, the dynamic, you know, you are part of the black working class, whether, you know, however they want to try and manipulate things, fine. But I think that would be the identity. And for a lot of people who are, com- who are coming from you know, well-to-do backgrounds. They come here and then they get other straight away. And I've seen it even with people from different backgrounds, Turkish backgrounds, Greek backgrounds, that kind of thing. Um, and I've seen it throughout the industry. They come to this country and all of a sudden they're, all, they're a foreigner. Yeah. You're no longer, do you know what I mean? You're yeah, no totally. longer who you were back home. You're just a foreigner and that's it. So a lot of the foreign conversations that's had around migration numbers, etc. they're looking at, they're looking at us like, why are people talking about us like this? For all what we bring to the country and now I'm just being othered as a, as a foreigner. Do you know what I mean? So, I think when it comes to class, the British have a lot to answer for in terms of class with its own people, with, with, with what it's done in Scotland, Wales, etc. Do you know what I mean? How Britain actually gets down and, and creates its own working class demographic, there's something to be had there. But I think race makes it so convenient for white people to not study class anymore. Mm-hmm. They can just look at the others that are coming in and causing problems. I mean, like we were saying uh, earlier, I don't think working whites, class sorry. is a monolith yeah. either. Just like black people, BAME people are not a monolith. Right. There's sophistication and, and, and differentiation in all of these categories. Definitely. And I think this is why we do an injustice to the problems we're trying to solve when we oversimplify. We're going to say goodbye to you too at this, um, at this time. Are we just going to go to this clip? Um, so thank you, yeah, for, for okay, both from, Jason, um, for Justin. both Justin, I'm sorry. This is Justin, there, right? yes. Okay, okay. Thanks for having me. Let this. me thank tell you. you a little story. I like this story. The story about Isaiah. Oh, I was walking yeah. down. I used to be. Um, I used to read my my Guardian every day. I still. I don't read. I don't buy it. I read it online. Yeah. Um. And not every day. Um. And I was walking down the street. This street here. Um. In, it was dark. I was going around the corner to the shop. Um. And it. You know. Um. I had been reading about a spate of robberies, um, muggings, violent crime always involving black youth 
Um, obviously, I'm a black woman. Anyway, I'm walking down the road. It's dark. I see a youth approaching me. He's big, he's tall, he's dark, he's got his hood up. I feel apprehensive, I feel scared, you know, and I kind of join myself to the edge of the road because he's on the inside, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, I was actually not quite scared, but I was apprehensive, yeah, and I'm watching him. And as the youth approached me, I could see a little bit more. Long story short, it ended up being my son. That was my son, yeah? Six. That was my son. He's six foot four and he's under <laughs> You know, at the time he was 15. You know, that was my son. And, and that day I stopped buying The Guardian. You know, I stopped, I stopped buying um, papers and I don't read them on a daily basis because they can make you so afraid of shadows. You know, of, 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 you know, so yeah, that's my story about the media. Foobar Radio presents... Douglas Booth's coming in. Um, didn't you play Boy George? He's great. I have nothing but love for him. He always extremely generous yeah. to me in that whole process. I only have good things to say. Can you make some art? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that he kills cats under, kill <laughs> under cover of darkness. <laughs> He's the famous Clapham cat killer. The Clapham cat killer. <laughs> Wasn't there that real thing where cats are being mutilated and then they realised it was actually just one rogue And it was, but it was Boy George. Yeah, (laughs) and they realised it was Boy George. (laughs) Every Monday. Ian Boltsworth. From 2pm. Fubar Radio. Hi, um, so thank you very much for to Justin and Mandrew who just had to le- um, leave and that, that clip we just played was of a black mother in London talking about what she thinks about the media portrayal of um, black people, specifically young black people. And I think we've got Sean Bailey on the line. Yes, you do. Here I am. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. But I was just about to say, actually, so as that mother was talking about, about the way that they portray young black people within the shadows, as, as somebody that walked the shadows of West London and now you're in the limelight as the Conservative candidate for um, the Tory party. How, like, you know, tell me how that little clip made you feel and what your kind of plans are to change that. When I was hearing her speak, I kind of knew what she was going to say because I, I, I've had a similar experience myself with a, with a young man I've worked with for years. And I, I was in Grove one night and he was kind of walking with me past the gym. I, I don't know if anybody knows that because, but there's a little dark alley that goes past the gym and that night the lights are out and as he walked past me I kind of looked his way and I thought oh my god I know you and we started chatting and she's right that portrayal of black people as always dangerous always needing help always being in trouble that's been in the media for years and I think recently it's ramped up and now we're linked to knife crime we're, we're seen as, as, as gang members and, and why I'm distressed about that is because our community is so much more than that so much more. There's lots of young black people are successful, education, employment, all those kind of things. And that's the kind of thing I want to promote. Half the reason I'm standing for Mayor of London is to demonstrate that black people can do many, many positive things. Our community has much talent in it, and I'm just one, hopefully, example of that. Okay, so what's your personal experience as a black man, specifically within the Conservative Party, which out there is um, demonised as being racist and, and, and welcoming, really being like? Let's be clear, when you first come to the Conservative Party, it's like going to any super white environment, you know, you, you, you think about things. I, 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 I think of people who join the police force who, who, who join the army, who go in the corporate world that I've had, have had exactly the same experiences as me, except in politics. It's much more obvious. People speak about it more. It isn't, they're not quite as afraid of it. And I found the Conservative Party definitely hasn't been perfect over the years, but it's got a lot better. And what I've noted is people are prepared to have the conversation. They're not afraid. And when we constantly beat people up, accuse them of being racist, what we do is use allies, lose allies. They move away from us because they're afraid of offending people. I haven't, 
I've always made sure that if someone's racist, I'll call them out. But if they're reaching out trying to learn, I also educate them as well. No, I agree with that. So I um, had a lot of pushback today on Twitter when I um, called a specific person who's about to um, set up a Brexit party at races. And I do think that there is a racial element between everybody's conversations, but it's about how damaging that is and calling that out. And coming back to that in terms of um, Brexit as... As a um, as a black man, as a man who's who's standing for a party that seemed to be on the right, what is your perception um, and what are your views on Brexit and what's happening at the moment? There's a couple of things I'd say. First and foremost, beware of being used. People immediately go to your race or your nationality to make sure that you don't look at what their actually what their policies actually are, what their history is. They wave their hands very loudly on one arena, one that they know is emotionally powerful for you and don't answer any of the other ones. So when they're accusing everybody else of being racist, what's their history? When they're accusing everybody else of being racist, what are they going to do for you housing? Because I can tell you right now, the big challenges facing the black community are no different from the challenges facing the white community. We need housing, we need regular jobs, and we need our young people to be helped when they're trying to do the right thing and stayed away from the bad things. That's, that's universal. The reason I became a conservative is because I was worried about my community being pathologized in towards towards welfare to us always being dependent and i find that quite infuriating because I, I don't know about anybody else but black people i grew up with had many 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 talents no different to any white community and i always wanted that to be how we're seen as people who can do things for ourselves and also for the wider community as well my politics isn't only for black people it's for everybody who leads ordinary life who needs that little that little help up I'm much more interested in what we have in common than what we have in difference, and that's where I'm coming from on all of these things. Okay, so the, Annette, okay, so we've talked about um, specifically about being um, black and being male, and one of the th- key key, um, key things that Justin, who was here in the last um, section, was talking about toxic masculinity. And you are a friend, but I know you've you, you've had a lot of pushback from a lot of the things that you said in your younger days, and when you were talking to you said specifically talking to young men on the street um, about women. How do you think that you can? Really appeal to um, the, the women of London and how can we um, or for me actually or someone like me influence a young Sean not to use the language which you used that's exactly isn't it so you're talking about conversations I had 15 years ago when I was a youth worker on the street not some slick career politician trying to impress people I was having communications and, and um, reflecting the, the, the language that the people I was speaking to who were on road, in, in their words, in the life, how they viewed the world. And, and when people ask you about youth work, and everybody's in favour of you, but just exactly what do they think that we're doing? Are we playing table tennis and giving people biscuits? Or are we having conversations about the world as they see it? I dealt with the toughest kids, the toughest young people in the toughest situations, which meant we had very tough, very rough conversations yeah but you haven't can I, so i think this is one of the key things is that you were having conversations with young like with young men not not with young women so as somebody with four brothers and i i constantly on a day-to-day basis i put myself out there whether i'm in piccadilly circus or whether i'm in tottenham court road or whether i'm in um in um in the notting hill i see young black boys and i do engage with them and i do get the pushback in terms of the way that they talk to other young women so i don't I, I get you were a youth worker, but you were also the adult in that situation. So if but, you that, but, that, but that's the point. That's exactly the point, wasn't it? I was talking to them about what they were saying and why they were saying it and why it was wrong. Okay. Because, because one of the things that I also get in trouble for, which nobody's um, publicised, because you know, because it's been a great deal of smear attack against me, which is there has, fine. No, there has. So listen, I want to give you the opportunity to say that I know that you're not that guy. So why were you having these conversations, and what was the kind of the, the results of the conversations? 
I was having that conversation because that was my daily reality. When you're trying to convince people that gang activity, general crime, and not pushing forward in sort of conventional ways is is when they're not doing those things and you have to convince them that conventional life is the norm and it is easier and it has better outcomes, you have to myth, myth bus and uh, bus and spend a lot of time having those rough conversations. And at the time, I remember saying to someone, um, and the, another thing I got in trouble for is when I said, look, black women will rescue the black community because when they stop accepting boys who are basically bums, everybody will have to step up their game. And I was having those conversations with people as well, but that, but that doesn't suit the smear attack that everybody's built against me, so it's fine. But the point is this, isn't it? When I was dealing with people, we were dealing with people who were on the road, and I was having to miss bus, and they were having to trust me, and I was having to demonstrate I understood where they were coming from, so that they would listen to where I was coming from. And anybody who says to you, that they do gang work and, and all that kind of stuff. Ask them if they had conversations that would put, they'd rather just keep to those people. Yeah. The thing about me is this, right? I'm not some slick career politician who's always looking how he can look good. I'm someone who wants to get things done. I'm someone who wants to change the paradigm for, for poorer people, for struggling people. And that's why you always find me at the sharp end. If I, if I offended anyone, I apologize. That is never, that is never the goal. I've said it a hundred times because I don't think I'm perfect. I don't think I have the answer to everything, but I certainly know I'm prepared to work on anything. If that means having a tough conversation, I'll have it, rather than hide away. When you hide away from things, for the people at the sharp end, it never gets solved. And year in, year out, generation in, generation out, they just suffer. And I always want to make things better for people. That's really good to hear. So on that note, can I ask you, so I know we're all talk, we're always talking about building new houses and that kind of general um, slick politician language. What are your, what are the kind of key campaigns, um, the key policies that, that you're really passionate about? And also, how is your campaign going and or what are you finding most difficult? So the thing I'm most focused on is employment. Employment and housing. Housing, any, any politician in London would say that to you. It's been a perennial problem in London for 50 odd years now. Some focus on, on housing. But for me as well, particularly because of my background working and coming from a poor community, I believe that a community with, with long-term, decent employment becomes more and more powerful. It can make decisions. It's not, it's not surviving anymore. It's thriving. You can make a decision to, to give your kids extra books, to take them to the museum, to focus on school because you're not just living hand-to-mouth. So you'll always hear me talk about employment, meaningful, long-term, sustainable, profitable employment. And then all the things that link to that, education, et cetera, et cetera. Like for me, I'm a massive fan of FE College. It was FE College and Army Cadets that made a big difference to my attitude and my life outcomes. And I want to make sure that people have that access as, as well. When you talk about housing, for instance, though, all politicians for so long have, have, have fiddled around the edge. If you take the current mayor, he's been given a record amount of money. He talks a good game. He hasn't, he hasn't even spent half the money he's been given. So I would spend that money. And there's one particular thing I do. He currently has a ban on building on brownfield sites, they're called strategic industrial land. I would remove that. We can't build on it all, but we can build on some of it. And why I do that, because it increased the land supply, reduced the price of rent, most foremost rent. It reduced the cost of renting so more people could rent, because I want people to be able to have a, a, a safe, warm, reliable place to live, because from there you can build all things. You know, comfort starts at home, opportunity starts at work, and they're the two things I'm most focused on. Okay, that's great. So I'm going to just wrap, wrap this up. And nobody knows I was going to ask you this, but I'm incredibly passionate about access to contraception in London. As mayor, what would you do for young professional women and access to contraception in the city? Because it's actually hell. 
I've already been in contact with a PM about this, and they wrote back and said, when when and when we leave the EU, I almost said if then, when we leave the EU, they'll remove the VATs. That's what they're looking at, because the VATs in the EU, apparently, to lower the cost as well. But I think that's why I'd want to be Mayor London, because you take the platform to do positive things. And I would say to manufacturers, you need to come up with a brand that is significantly cheaper. You know, if you want people to buy high luxury, high perfume stuff, fine. People always buy that. But you've also got to provide something because you do have the capacity to make it cheaper and much more available. That's one route, getting the manufacturers involved. Okay, the thank route, the sorry, the charity sorry. involved as well. Thank you very much for that, Sean, and um, hopefully speak to you soon again. Yeah, Take anytime. Bye. Bye. Okay, bye. So we're just about to um, play one of my um, fa- fa- favourite songs by Nipsey Hussle. And I just want to say thank you to everybody that came and thank you to Fuba Radio for having me. I'm the type that's gonna go get it. No kidding. Breaking down a switch in front of your building. Sitting on the steps feeling no feelings. Last night it was a cold killer. You gotta keep the devil in this hole, nigga. But you know how it go, nigga. I'm front line every time it's on, nigga. 100 pro flow, run and shoot pro. 458 drop, playing bulletproof soul. Every few shows, I just buy some new gold. You've been listening to a Fubar Radio podcast. For more information, go to fubarradio.com.